Our scripture reading this morning is from John 20, 1 through 11. It is found on page 906 in your pew Bible. And if you do not have a Bible at home, we'd really love for you to take that one as a gift from us for you to have. Again, it's um, 906 in our pew Bible. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of the linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kristen. Church, he is risen. Amen. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and we're so glad that you're here with us this morning, especially if it's your first time or you're a guest here with us. Uh, we're so glad that you are celebrating uh, this today with your family and friends and uh, that you've chosen to be with us this morning. As we continue in uh, worship and celebration this morning, I want to uh, just pause here and pray as we look at the scriptures together. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us um, the witness of the scriptures to the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that he has risen again and that we pray now in the name of the risen and reigning Jesus. Amen. Well, have you ever noticed that life is never what it ought to be? That there are always problems. There's always a problem, right? Um, Even when you try to take a vacation uh, from your problems and and get away from it all, there are still problems. I I remember back in 2015, I was on sabbatical and I'd received this incredible grant to go and study the life of C.S. Lewis in Belfast and Oxford. And I'd handed all the church problems off to Pastor Paul. So thanks, Paul, for that. I'd just given those all to him. Um, And I I was feeling great. I was ready for this trip. And when we were on that day of leaving for the trip, uh, the big family crew was together. It was going to be me and my wife and her parents, and at that time, just our 18-month-old daughter. And we gathered at the Kansas City International Airport, ready for our big trip. I have a picture of us here, I think, um, when we were, yeah, so look at those. We were all so happy. We were so excited. But I'm telling you, those poor fools had no idea what was about to hit them in this trip. Um, We were about ready to take off. And as we were flying to Atlanta from Kansas City, then we were going to go on to Belfast. Easy enough. But there was a massive thunderstorm over the Atlanta International Airport. And so we were delayed and we just kept circling and circling in the air over the Nashville area. And finally we had to land in Nashville to refuel. And so as soon as the plane landed, we could turn our phones. I checked and looked. I thought our one hope is if if they aren't letting planes land, they're probably not letting planes take off. And so maybe our international flight is still there. It was. It had been delayed by the same amount of time that we had so far. So there's a chance we're going to make this flight. So finally, after about an hour on the ground in Nashville, we had a chance to get refueled, 
got airborne again and made the short flight from Nashville to Atlanta. And on the plane, we made a plan. This is what was going to happen. I was going to be the designated runner. As soon as that, as soon as that fasten seatbelt sight came off, I was going to run and push my way down the front of that plane off the, and I was going to go and see if I could hold the plane for us. So plane lands, I'm ready, fasten seatbelt sign goes off, take off my seatbelt, I push, I shove, I run down the airplane, I run down the jetway, find the monitor, plane is still there. Okay, delayed, I got the gate number, and I sprint down the escalator to, the, you know, Atlanta, they have these big trains that take you to different terminals, so I jump on the train, push people off as I'm getting off the train, sprint up the escalator, and I'm in the right terminal now. And this is where I really start running. I'm just like jogging, this is like T-Rex from Tyrannosaurus Rex, uh, you know, sort of Jurassic Park chasing you, sprinting down the aisle of the airport. And I finally get to the, the end. It was the last gate. Of course, it's the last gate, right? So the last gate is where I play, and I see the most beautiful thing. There is a 747 outside the window of the gate. It hadn't left yet. I get to the counter. Out of breath, big smile on my face. So we made it. My, my family's coming in just a minute. And the attendant says, you know, we just closed the door of the plane. And it's been waiting for too long. We're not going to reopen it. We had to close it. We're not letting anyone else on. And five minutes later, my family gets there. And together, we stood out the window. (laughs) I think we all cried. And we watched our airplane back away from the gate without us on it and take off for Belfast. Now, the next day, we did get a flight to Belfast. We made it there. Only two, we get to our, our Airbnb in downtown Belfast, we open up the door, and there's a pile of dog poop right there on the, in the, inside the door, and we were right across the street from this, this club that played techno music till like three in the morning. Like problems, right? Like even when you're on vacation, trying to get away from the problems, there's still problems. It's just how life is. Problems. We can't even take vacation from them. And we live in the safest, most comfortable, most technically advanced society ever. And we still have a ton of problems. And the least of which are delayed flights and dog people. Those are so small in the grand scheme of things. Those are the kinds of problems that turn into funny stories later on. But then there are those problems that never turn into funny stories later on. Moments when we find ourselves like Mary from our scripture reading, reduced to tears, overwhelmed, in despair. Where, where do these problems come from? Why do, they, why do they never go away? How do we explain the brokenness of the world and the brokenness that we experience in our own lives? Yeah, and to begin to answer that question, we actually have to go back to the, the very beginning of the Bible. And that's what we've been doing as a church lately. We've been studying the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Because without knowing how the story begins, uh, you can't understand the significance of what ha- is happening later on. One of the things I think that annoys Rachel, my wife, the most is I'll be at an evening meeting. I'll come home. She's in the middle of watching some episode of a TV show. And I sit down on the couch. And I'm like, wait, why is that person so angry? Or wait, what's the, what's the deal with that character? She's like, I'm not going to explain the last one. 20 minutes in the show to you. You just sat down. Um, I, somehow I still keep asking her to do that. Uh, but that's what I want to do for us this morning. Let's actually take us back to the beginning of the story so we can understand what is going on in the middle of it. 
that's what we want to do this, this Easter morning. So we're actually going to start in Genesis, and then we'll end up in John, where we heard the scripture reading from this morning. What we discover when we turn to the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 in particular, is that the Bible puts us as human beings at the center stage in the answer to the question, why is life not what it ought to be? In other words, the contention of these opening chapters of, of the Bible is that we are our greatest problem. That we collectively as humanity, that we are our greatest problem. Because God makes this beautiful, abundant world, where, and, and he calls human beings the crown of his creation. He invites them, creates them to, to actually, it's a language of royalty, to rule with him in wise and good rule over the earth that he has made. And this is how Genesis chapter 1 ends. Everything is, is as it ought to be. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And God gives human beings a, a beautiful garden to live in, freedom and abundance. You can eat from any tree except for one. There's one thing you can't do. And that, that one prohibition, it's an invitation to trust in God's goodness, to trust in his wisdom, even when we don't understand. It's an opportunity to say, I trust you. I know that you have what's best in mind for me. An invitation to believe that he knows best, even if we don't understand. But in Genesis chapter 3, the first humans, Adam and Eve, they are tempted by this mysterious evil force from outside of the garden, and they reject the invitation. They reject the invitation to continue to trust in God. And they eat from the tree. Chapter 3 records that moment for us. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Essentially, in that moment, they say, God, we don't really need you. We don't trust you. Actually, we don't think that you are good because you're keeping something from us. That we want to do this on our own apart from you. And the thing is, is that as humans, we have believed that ever since. But we are our greatest problem. I recently heard a leadership expert ask the question, it was on a podcast, he says, what, is the, what is the common denominator in every bad decision you've ever made? And he kind of pauses for a beat and he says, you are, right? Like, I've been present and intimately involved in every bad decision I've made. Um, I'm the common denominator in every one of those decisions. And, and, right, and wouldn't it be nice if our bad decisions, if our mistakes if they only affected us, wouldn't that be great? But it's, it's not the case, is it? They always affect others, too. They always have repercussions with those around us. Uh, last summer, we were returning home from a two-week family road trip, and on the final day of that trip, I, I lost my temper with my oldest daughter. And that bad decision, like, it didn't just affect her, right? It affected everyone else in that minivan for the rest of the day. I still look back on that moment. I was like, man, I blew it as a parent there. And that didn't just affect me. It's always been that way. 
you and I are still suffering from the fallout of Adam and Eve's original rebellion against God. We as humanity are the common denominator in every bad decision we make. And the consequences of those decisions, not just in our own lives, but of of years after year of those decisions and generation after generation and the compounding effect of those decisions, they wound and oppress and even kill others. Right? For for everything from, from drunk driving to sex trafficking to credit card debt to child labor, we are our greatest problem. Right? And we can't understand our problems until we understand that it begins there. And yes, of course, there are evils that are bigger than us, that are outside of us. Yes, there are all kinds of things that just that happen to us that are outside of our control, people who hurt and abuse us. But again, that pattern of that happening over and over and over again across family, across generation, across time. Genesis 3 shows us that we as human beings unleashed those things into God's good creation in the first place. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, really, Bill? Like, I wanted to come and be happy on Easter. Now you're saying, I'm what's wrong with the world? (laughs) Thanks a lot. Um, Well, don't worry. It gets worse before it gets better. So um, when we turn to the next point here, because the moment that Adam and Eve rebelled against God... Lots of stuff breaks in that moment. And actually, in Genesis chapter 3, you can read a whole list of all kinds of things that begin to go wrong in the world. And we're going to look at that in a lot more detail next week as we continue in Genesis. But, but the greatest consequence is this. God said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And we do, don't we? We do. Every single human being who has ever lived, has died. You see, by rejecting God, we actually rejected life. And you can say, I don't want the source of life. But you you can't say, I don't want the source of life, and then expect to continue to live. Sure, we can pretend that we don't need it, uh, but that doesn't change the reality that we will die without it. Like, I can go on a hike in the desert without water. I can do that. I can say, I don't need water, I don't want water, I'm fine without water. But if I cut myself off from water, yeah, I might live for a couple of days, but it doesn't matter how I feel about water at that point. Eventually, I'm going to die. Right? Like each and every one of us here this morning is like, is like a beautiful cut flower. There's incredible glory, incredible beauty in this room. God's creation, every one of you. But all like a cut flower. Destined to die. Last Sunday, our little girls uh, did their ballet performance. They've been in this ballet class. I got a picture over here. They're the two in the middle. Um, so proud dad. Yeah, so they did this ballet performance. And afterwards, I thought, oh, we thought it'd be fun to get them flowers, right? So I went to Trader Joe's. I got them each a bouquet of flowers. And so we've had these two bouquets of flowers on our dining room table. But we've watched over the week, right? It's been a week now. Those beautiful flowers, they're still beautiful, but they're beginning to wilt. They're beginning to fade. Beautiful but fading. Lovely but dying. Right? And as much as we try to ignore it or avoid thinking about it or sanitizing it, the reality is is that it is coming for all of us. 
right? And even our kids get that at some level. Last Friday, we watched Snow White for the first time with, with our two girls. They're five and three. And I'd kind of forgotten how much death is a theme in that movie. <laughs> it's kind of actually pretty strong. I actually, actually I have a picture. Like, this is one of the scenes in the movie since the kids are kind of like, well, like, what's this? All? Like, is she dead? Is she going to come back alive? And um, apparently this made a pretty big impression on Lucy, who's five, because the next morning... Rachel overheard this conversation. She's telling Isla, her little sister, who's three, and in a way that kind of an authoritative but nonchalant voice that only a big sister can kind of use with a little sister, just explaining to Isla the facts of life. And she says, you know, Isla, right now, even people are dying, like right in this moment. And then they just went on with the rest of the conversation. It was like, hey, just, I want you to know how this works. And, and that, you know, it didn't seem to particularly bother Lucy at the moment. It was just another fact for her. Like, I like the sky is blue, grass are green, and even at this moment right now, people are dying. You know, but when we grow older, we know that's not just another fact in life. It is the great horror of life. It is the monster that stalks us all. In fact, it is on the cross on Good Friday that we see the, the picture of where all sin, where all rebellion and rejection of God ends up in death. And death always seems to have the last word, right? No matter how wonderful and faithful and beautiful of a life that someone lives, it always ends in death. And well, happy Easter to you too, Bill. But stay with me here, because if we don't face these realities, friends, we will think that Easter is simply another holiday with flowers and bunnies and candy, but it is not. Easter is the greatest solution to our greatest problem. It is the solution to death. We are our greatest problem. Death is the greatest consequence, but friends, Easter, Easter morning is the greatest solution. And our problem, right, it began all that time ago, back in Genesis 3, it began in a garden. And the greatest solution, it also came in a garden. Because flash forward to 30 AD, every story in this book points to this moment, the son of a woman who would undo all the mistakes of so many decades and generations and years and millennium. And by now, no doubt, it's a story that you've heard by now. That Jesus killed on a cross. Jesus hanging there dead. The world thinks that God has failed. That death has won again like it always does. That's what everybody thinks after Jesus dies. That Jesus' life had ended in the garden of despair just like everyone else's. But, but let me show you this. Because John tells us at the end of John chapter 19 that two followers of Jesus, they go to Pilate, the Roman governor who had ordered Jesus' crucifixion. They come down and say, can we, can we have Jesus' body? He's dead now. Can we take his body and bury it? And so they take Jesus' dead corpse off of the cross and they prepare it for burial. Where? In a garden. Look at the end of John chapter 9, beginning in verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus... And bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Death in a garden. 
Same old story, right? That's Friday. But then you get to Sunday. You get to today. And something is different. Something happened in that garden of death that was different. Mary Magdalene, not Mary's mother, but Mary Magdalene, one of his followers, she goes to that garden tomb on that first Easter Sunday morning. Imagine with me. Do you see her there in the tomb? Face to face with our greatest enemy. Looking into the tomb, the consequence of all of our sin and failure, staring it in the face, looking into the tomb, and it's empty. It's empty. And she thinks that Jesus' body has been stolen. Of course she does. No one, no one overcomes death. No one comes back from the dead. No one in the ancient world, right? Like people in the ancient world weren't any more gullible about death than we are. No one believes that dead people rise again. Of course she thinks they took the body. There's an empty tomb just meant someone stole, had stolen the body away. And she's weeping and she, she turns through, through tear-clouded eyes and she sees who she thinks is the gardener. And she says, maybe he took it, maybe he moved it. And she goes, you know, where have you taken him? Just, just tell me and, and I'll take care of it. And then the gardener says one word. One word that changes everything. He says, Mary. Mary. He calls her by her name. And nobody captures this scene more brilliantly than Sally Lee Jones in her, in her children's Bible. Let me just read it for you. Just then, Mary heard someone else in the garden. Perhaps it's the gardener, she thought. He'll, he'll know where Jesus' body is. I don't know where Jesus is, Mary said urgently. I can't find him. I love this. But it was all right. Jesus knew where she was. He had found her. Mary. Only one person said her name like that. She could hear her heart thumping. She turned around. She could make out a figure. She shaded her eyes to see. And she thought she was dreaming. But she wasn't dreaming. She was seeing Jesus. The moment that Jesus calls Mary by her name, she knows he's risen. With a new and glorious body. He, he isn't a ghost or a spirit or a vision. She falls down and she grabs onto his, his body, his new resurrected body. And, and don't you see, intellectual arguments, as important as they are, will only take you so far in understanding the resurrection of Jesus. Because history tells us there is an empty tomb and that no body was ever produced. It also tells us that... that Lots of people claim to see Jesus alive. And look, this morning, let me, let me tell you, I am fully convinced that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the best explanation of the twin facts of history. There was an empty tomb with nobody produced and eyewitness accounts of Jesus being seen alive again. I'm convinced that's true, but intellectual arguments won't make this real for you today. This only becomes real for you today. When he calls your name. And he is calling your name this morning. Are you listening? Are you willing to hear? Why are you here this morning? I don't know this morning why you came. Maybe you're scared. Maybe you feel like you've reached the end of your rope. Maybe you feel guilty, ashamed. 
Uh, maybe you came because your parents made you come this morning. Maybe you came to make your mom happy. Maybe you're alone. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe this is just a tradition for you. I don't, I don't know why you came this morning. There's as many different stories as there are people in this room today. But I do know why God showed up on Easter morning. To show you that all of your problems, no matter how bad, to show you no matter what your struggle, no matter what your, your problem, no matter how shameful you feel like your life or your past or your present is, that all of that shame and guilt and pain have been killed at the empty tomb. For every fear, there is an empty grave, the empty grave of Jesus Christ. He has defeated death. And though death still waits for us all, it is no longer final. It will not have the last word. It has been defeated. Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then Jesus asked this question, do you believe this? Do you believe this, church? If you cling to him, you too will rise. No more fear of death, no more shame. He is calling your name. Do you hear him? Friends, the cross and the empty tomb are the measure of how wide and long and high and deep the love of Jesus is for you. The one who declared at the beginning of time, on the day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. He steps in the gap and takes that death for them for me, for you. It is love that is calling your name. Don't you understand? Jesus is not standing over judgment and anger over you this morning. He is inviting you. He loves you. He gave his life for you. Do you hear him? Friends, here's the simple, life-altering, eternity-transforming good news. To begin a life of following Jesus having your sin, your guilt, your shame forgiven, dealt with, being made new, hearing his voice, simply, there's just simply three things. First, just admit that you are your greatest problem. Well, like all of us have to get to the point where we just say, you know what, I, it's my bad choices, my selfishness, my pride, my indifference toward you, God, that's my greatest problem. So admit that, and then, and then recognize that, that death is a reality, that it's coming but I deserve it. And then finally, trust in Jesus as the only hope in life and in death. We do a catechism with our kids, and the first question is, what is your only hope in life and in death? That I belong to God. That I belong to God. Trust in the risen Jesus. Stop trying to manage your sin and your shame and your life all on your own and rest in his resurrection. You, you might pray something like this, Jesus, for too long I have blamed others, but today I admit I'm my greatest problem. That death is coming for me, that I deserve it. Will you forgive me? Will you rescue me? Will you give me the gift of faith to know you and the power of your resurrection? So what will you do with Jesus this morning? Will you turn and cling to him as Mary does? Or will you walk away? Will you live in the garden of resurrection? Or will you return to the garden of despair? 
pray, I pray that you will choose the garden of resurrection. Jeff did, and it changed everything for him. Take a look. Before coming to Christ, I, I was absent uh, of, of an identity. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know why I was. My life was lived with this hollow emptiness within my soul, within my heart. And I tried to fill that with gangs and, and sense of identity and family. And so uh, I had the Harley. I, I, I carried my, my pistol, my gun. Uh, I dealt in drugs and I did drugs. And uh, my life was spiraling out of control, out of control, out of control. I had destroyed my family. I had destroyed my friendships and every relationship that I had. Uh, I sought to hurt the people involved. God led me to a, a gondola uh, on Beaver Creek uh, Resort where I met a guy who I don't want to call a guy. I think he was an angel who came to me and preached the gospel message to me for the very first time in my whole life and I was 26 years old. And I wanted him to keep his mouth shut and, and, and leave me alone. But he kept yapping and yapping, yapping, and then the words caught me, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jeff, the hope for your life. I didn't surrender my life right then and there. I didn't have a come to Jesus moment. I didn't have that Damascus Road experience, but I walked away from that day knowing that I wanted to go on a, on a search for it. I went on these other journeys, and, and everything was meaningless. There was no hope in it. There was loss and rejection and pain until eventually I said, forget it all. I'm done. I was done with life. I was done with the misery that I left behind. I hurt a lot of people. I've got a lot of destruction in my, in my past, uh, uh, damaged uh, relationships and, and people that uh, their lives are forever changed because of my criminal activity. And I couldn't live with the pain of that, the hopelessness of it. There, there was no answer. There's no answer for redemption or restoration there was nothing there and I was hollow I was hollow inside and I couldn't live with the fact that I hurt people and I hurt them really bad and why I did it there was no hope for me and so I found my dad's gun key and I unlocked it and when I loaded the gun up and I plotted it out in my head and I was standing there looking in a mirror this is it. I don't have to live with it anymore. I don't have to go through it. I don't have to think about it every day of why I did what I did and who I did it to. I could just be done. So I had the gun propped up against the wall and I stared in that bathroom mirror when I heard these tiny little footsteps come through the house of my mom's house. And my mom had ran some daycare, so she, she had a lot of little kids that would run around. And I'm a big kid myself, and I refused to grow up. So the kids loved me, uh, and uh, she come running through that house, and she stopped dead in her tracks, and she hadn't seen me in a year. She was seven at the time, and she had two front teeth missing. She looked right up at me, and she looked me dead in the face, and she said, Jeff, do you want a color? <laughs> and I said, absolutely, I want a color. That's when the Holy Spirit hit me. That's when my life changed. And that guy on a gondola who told me about that gospel message of hope and restoration, and healing, and redemption, and forgiveness, and all these words that I knew nothing about, suddenly they made sense in this act of this little seven-year-old girl who just wanted to be with me. And, and I knew that that's who the Savior was. He said, come to me, you who are weary and 
and burdened, heavy laden. And, and I'm going to give you rest, Jeff. And I'm going to forgive you. This hope is for me. This hope of, of, of renewal, of restoration, of change, of, of uh, hope in a Savior. It's for me. And thank goodness. Thank goodness. But it's also about us. And the hope that is for us is that I'm not alone in it. I have brothers and sisters, a family of believers, all striving for that same goal, all striving for that same hope. And then we, uh, as a people together, can be that hope for the world because the church is the hope of the world. And Christ's community reminds me each and every day that I'm in it with a family. Will you join his family too? The, the local church is a resurrection community and it's here that we live out and know this, this new life that, that Jesus offers us in his resurrection. So today, if you hear his voice, come to him, join his family. He's waiting for you. If, if you in the this, in this service are kind of feeling like, yeah, I'm being drawn to this, what do I do next? Come back, come back next week. Be a part of this family. Be a part of this family.